Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Wicker Man from 1973, directed by Robin Hardy, written by Anthony Schaefer, starring Edward Woodard, Britt Eklund, Diane Silento, Ingrid Pitt, and Christopher Lee. In this film, a Scottish detective visits a remote island community to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. And if you're new to the show, we're going to talk about this movie spoiler-free for the first 15 or 20 minutes. But after that, we'll play some transition music and walk through the plot, spoiling things as we go, and, and we'll also review the movie. So if you haven't seen it by the time we get to that musical transition, you can go watch it on Tubi, I believe. And uh, we are covering this because we this is unusual for us. We're on top of things. This will have its 50-year anniversary the day this episode comes out, December 6th, 1973. That's incredible. Good timing. Yeah, so we're celebrating its 50th anniversary today with this episode. Cool. And this was a request by Colin D. a long time ago. So we are getting to it, Colin, or even coming back around to it because... As with our recent episode on The Ritual, this was one that we did as a test episode before launching the podcast. So good to come back around to it, buddy. Yeah, I don't think I'd seen it since. Uh, you don't You don't have the recording for that one, do you? I don't, n- nor do I have the notes for it. Okay, yeah. Fun, fun to revisit after five years. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I was wondering, you know, we always have our movies where... People are kind of angry at us for our take, or we go against uh, the popular take on a movie. Not to purposely anger anyone, it's just the way we honestly feel. (laughs) And I wonder if you and I discussing this movie in detail a year or so before Midsommar came out was part of the reason we weren't quite as up on Midsommar as everybody else. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, What you think, like, this set our expectations too high and then Midsommar like didn't deliver on those? I don't necessarily think that it set our expectations too high, but everyone seemed to be blown away by the originality of Midsommar and the mm. premise itself. And it's just a very similar setup to The Wicker Man. I mean, different movie for sure, but... Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I thought like Midsommar is like pretty on the nose about like how much it uh, builds off of a movie like The Wicker Man, and this movie like is cited throughout uh, most literature as like being so foundational for this drama or for this genre of folk horror, right? Yes, I, I consider this the the granddaddy of folk horror, but I don't think most people even knew what folk horror was until Midsommar. Mm, I kind of yeah. feel like that movie really put the subgenre on the map. Right? Yeah, brought it back. Yeah, and then people were even going back and retroactively saying, oh, this movie that came out a few years ago is folk horror, when I don't know that really at the time movies like The The Witch and The Ritual came out, if they were being called folk horror quite as much as they are today, retroactively looking back on them. Yeah, it's so strange. I I was just looking at a list before we recorded about like the top folk horror movies. And some of the films that get associated with that uh, with that genre like just don't make sense. Like Blair Witch Project is in there, uh, the Ritual, which I guess I can't. Hereditary is like mentioned as folk horror. Uh, yeah, Hereditary, no way, not right? even close. Yeah, so they like made this list of like the top twenty five folk horror films. So do you think maybe people just don't have any idea what it is and they're just trying to attach whatever they can to it? 
I remember getting frustrated around the time that Midsommar came out because I was like, everyone is just pretending that they know what this subgenre is. And I'm not saying that for sure you and I are the experts on knowing what this subgenre is, but I think people spread it pretty thin. Yeah. They, they really stretch, stretch the definitions. So we talked about this on our episode on The Blood on Satan's Claw, I believe. Mm-hmm. Probably. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and do it again. Um, so the term folk horror became commonly known, as I just said. I really think it was very commonly known after Midsommar, and until then, more obscure. But anyway, there was a show called The History of Horror with host Mark Gatiss, and in a 2010 episode, he says that there are this there's this loose collection of films that shared a common obsession with the British landscape, its folklore and superstitions. And he mentions Witchfinder General from 1968, The Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971, and The Wicker Man from 73. And he calls these films the unholy trinity. He calls them folk horror, but he kind of got that term from an interview with Piers Haggard, uh, the director of Blood on Satan's Claw, with Fangoria in 2004, in which he says he was trying to make a folk horror film. Interesting. Back when I was digging into the term for that episode, I that was like the earliest mention I saw of it was that like 2004 interview. 2004, so like 30 years after, uh, more than 30 years after these films came out, the term is uh, applied. I think so. Maybe he was using that term back in the day too, but uh, I, I'm really, I don't think people were really using this term until... Early 2000s, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, but really not until like the past four years ago. Open yeah. to, to differing opinions, but... Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- those three films, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I see cited as, as the pioneers of this genre. Uh, to me, they just... Uh, like, do you see a lot of commonalities across these, those three? I do, yeah. And so does Adam Scoville from the British Film Institute, Ashwin. He says... <laughs> well, if he does. <laughs> <laughs> he says, all three films work through an emphasis on landscape, which subsequently isolates its communities and individuals, skewing the dominant moral and theological systems enough to cause violence, human sacrifices, torture, and even demonic and supernatural summonings. Yeah, but only one of those films has the demonic uh, entities or like supernatural aspect right yeah yeah his definition isn't quite uh he's very close i still don't think he's nailing that i also feel like these three films as the unholy trinity it makes sense they all seem like folk horror to me but the wicker man is the one with the biggest cultural footprint by far it seems like yeah so many people haven't even heard of the other two we've covered the other two and they are two of our least listened to episodes so I don't think those other two caught on like The Wicker Man did. Yeah, what do you think it was about The Wicker Man? Was it Christopher Lee being in there, or do you think it was just better distribution? Hmm. I think it's just a better film, to be honest with you. I mean, Vincent Price was in uh, Witchfinder General. Right. Um, yeah, he's a pretty big so name. So that had a big name, too. Yeah. I, I Those movies are just inferior to this, in my opinion. Um Mm-hmm. Blood on Satan's Claw, both in even in like the production quality, isn't quite as slick. Witchfinder General is a bit more polished, but it's just kind of a rough and tumble movie. Yeah, I thought you were gonna theorize that it was because those didn't have songs in it, and this one is like a musical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone loves was, a musical. <laughs> another thing I was gonna bring up in the subgenre discussion is uh, 
You could make an argument that this is a musical. Yeah. I, th- I it think is n- Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I think uh, the director would agree, right? I think he, he came out or like decided like halfway through, hey, we're going to make a musical here. Yeah, he. I couldn't tell if he was being utterly sincere to his cast or kind of half joking. But yeah, supposedly on set, he revealed to them like, hey, we're making a musical, everybody. Do you think it's a musical? I think so, because I think you have at least three uh, parts of the movie where people are breaking out into song. Um, four or five. Oh, four or five. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anything you have with... three by the time you hit the 24 minute mark. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, definitely. Like for me, I feel like sometimes a movie has like one or two I could get by, like maybe it's not a musical and it's just like being uh, funny. But yeah, once you go three or more, it's, it, to me, that's musical. What, what about you? I, I think it is not a musical and it is not a musical because. In a musical, the songs kind of are part of the narrative and they advance the plot. I think you could argue that one of the songs here, like Willow's song, sung by the landlord's daughter, mm-hmm. kind of does that, but most of them don't. And the other thing about musicals is they almost have a sense of magical realism in a way because they exist in a world that is reality, but also in a world where people can just spontaneously make up songs and everyone knows how to join in and, you know, they know when the chorus hits, which makes no sense. (laughs) But in this movie, I think all the songs could be passed off as, these are folk songs of the island, everyone's singing because they know the songs they've sung them before. Mm. Yeah, It's not like someone's just like, I'm feeling good today, and then, you know, they're they're riffing (laughs) and everyone else is just, okay, I'm stepping in and we're doing a song and dance number. Yeah. I mean, there's dancing in this movie too, so... Right. It's easy to think, yeah, this is a musical, but... But it's almost like part of their day-to-day, so you think it's less... hmm. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah, I I haven't seen too many musicals, but you're right. Like That is a very different aspect. Uh, I'm trying to think of another musical that might... Uh, mimic this but yeah most most of the time it's like song starts and like yeah the you're outside of the rules of the movie now and you can do whatever you want right uh, but but this time you're always like in character basically or in, in the setting yeah it's almost like why bohemian rhapsody isn't a musical like yeah there are musical performances in it but yep it's by people who know the songs they're performing it's part of the thing like they do is perform music and this Culture is a very musical culture. Are you talking about the movie about Queen? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> a weird example. <laughs> yeah. You know, Wicker Man, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. I, yeah, I, I buy that argument. Uh, but it, yeah, for, for me, it still felt like too much singing and dancing, even if it was like in its natural element. Uh, yeah, it, it hits me as a musical. But I, I understand like what you're saying about it being different rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the thing with folk horror, a big part of it is always paganism, which I think is why people can lump hereditary into that mix. But mm-hmm. as we discussed in like some of our own personal criteria in the Blood on Satan's Claw episode, I think there needs to be something about a culture that lives as if they're not in modern times. Like... A little bit outside of the rest of society in more than just their religious beliefs. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and that rules out then like Blair Witch Project as well, right? Because you're not really coming across a culture of people. Yeah, there's no community there. That Blair Witch Project to me is an easy no. 
It involves a folktale of the area. That's where people get confused, I think. Yeah. Folk horror does not necessarily have to do with a... It's not like a dark fairy tale or folklore. It's something different. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. The other area where I feel like this intersects is uh, like hillbilly horror or just like the facing off with the others. So like a deliverance or um, yeah, whatever you want to throw into that category. Uh, Do you think that's more like a modern day take on on folk horror? Yeah, you know, I think they're different sides of the same coin. God, we are basically just redoing our Blood on Satan's Claw oh. <laughs> we for talked 20 about minutes this. or so. Yeah. yeah, we talked about all this. Um, here's the good difference there, I think. So, like, hillbilly horror, urbanoia, whatever you want to call it, is, okay, I'm in an area where I'm the outsider, but you're kind of tested physically, like, Everyone here knows this place more than me. They know this way of life better than me. Can my physical, can I physically and mentally like keep up with them? Can I prove to be successful in this environment Mm -hmm. against them? It's more like a physical battle or a battle of wits, like survival of the fittest. And this is more of a social thing. Like in folk horror, you are put, you're an outsider, but you're put into a community who's whole like social outlook is different than yours like their culture is different than yours and it's the cultural class clash Mm -hmm. that is the true challenge yeah there's physical threats because it's a horror movie but it's you're being tested in just like your concept of what is okay what makes sense your morals like Mm -hmm. hey those people are having sex right in the middle of public is that okay or hey that person just jumped off a cliff while everyone watched is that okay so I think your beliefs are being challenged more so than your, your physical, physical. physically it. being tested. Got it. Battle of ideology versus battle of arm wrestles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know all those famous uh, arm wrestling scenes yeah, from those movies. Wrong Turn. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the best. Yeah, yeah, two sides of the same coin in my book. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, 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 sometimes I think it's just uh, some uh, film buff like found those three movies and decided to attach a term there, which then has just been like interpreted for you know whatever people want to attach it to. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do see your point though. There's like a unifying theme across some of those films. Yeah, also a very strong possibility. I mean, all subgenres in a way are kind of made up, but. I think there's enough movies now, especially in the past 10 years or so, like folk horror feels like more of a genre now than it did in 2010. Yeah. Uh, also, there's like Midsommar. Uh, what else has uh, come out in like the last few years that you would categorize as folk horror? You know, I think The Witch could borderline on it. Yeah. Um Maybe like a the apostle, apostle. yeah, yeah, Airman Terry, whatever. No, I'd oh. say that's like a you know folklore type thing. Hagadusa, Hagazusa, <laughs> yeah. Is that what it's called? Something like that, Hagazusa. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man, I don't remember that one well enough to think if to wonder if it's folk horror or not. Mm. It might be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, I, I don't know. For, for, for me, at least, it's not a, a genre like I seek out or very much know how to appreciate. There's not a whole lot of entries in it. It's still, it's a pretty sparsely populated subgenre. Sure. Especially if you 
don't stretch the definitions to include things like Blair Witch. Right. Uh, anyway, this movie is a big deal, regardless of what subgenre you think it belongs to. It has a 90% critics score on Rotten Tomatoes and 82% from viewers. And in 2004, Total Film Magazine named The Wicker Man the sixth greatest British film of all time, not just horror film, British film period. It also won the 1978 Saturn Award for Best Horror Film. 1978, is that right? Hmm, like five I might years have later, written that down wrong. Uh, um, I know, yeah, unless it, it was on a delay. Yeah, I think it might have taken some time to roll out. Yeah, it could have. It could have, especially to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final scene of the film was number forty-five on Bravo's one hundred scariest movie moments. I wonder if those Bravo lists are important to anybody younger than us. <laughs> like I remember those on TV, yeah, quite a bit, but. Does yeah. Gen Z even know what the hell that is? Uh, I'm not sure I do. Is it, isn't Bravo like a channel? It is a channel, and it was a channel that was more dedicated to film and the arts back in the day. And they they would have these 100 greatest thrills or 100 scariest movie moments, mm. 100 greatest villains. Uh, that You know, they weren't... Uh, they were in between what Bravo was and what Bravo became. Uh, okay, okay. Well, good for them for still uh, holding on to those lists. Yeah, bravo. Something, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, this, uh, I don't really have great budget or box office it's uh, hard data for this. this. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the U.S., it was shown as the B picture in a double bill with Don't Look Now, which is a movie I'm surprised we haven't covered yet. Yeah, I know. I know. I feel like that one comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Now, that is the successor, or the uh, hereditary is, is more like a Don't Look Now to me. Oh, Yep. Like grief horror. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Basically, uh, Ari Aster's just like watched a bunch of movies <laughs> from 1973 and, and just yeah, copying riffed the off of them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's see. Music is done by Paul Giovanni. This is a very distinctive musical feel. It is a lot of like Irish folk songs and you're really transported to the setting here. Yeah, a lot of uh, corn and barley. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, very, uh, yeah. And it's like it, it runs throughout the film. I feel like music, music outside of even the songs that are playing, uh, the, the score here, it takes a big role. They play that corn rig song like five times in right? the movie. <laughs> yeah. Is this really that important to the plot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was remade in 2006 with Nicolas Cage as the lead, and that film is widely considered to be terrible, but I have still never seen that. Yeah, I me mean, neither. Any other background info you want to discuss on this thing before we walk through the plot? Uh, I think it's interesting the inception of this film was driven by Christopher Lee, the actor, which I feel like you don't see too often where uh, a movie's like, uh, yeah, like it gets its momentum from like an actor who wants to like play a specific role versus like a director or a writer kind of like finding a film crew and then like going about casting. So I, I don't know if that, uh, if we see the impact of that within the film, like that it was so driven by like Christopher Lee, like even, I think he did this uh, without being paid or like even like paid for like the, uh, the half of the PR or something or, di- or did his own PR or something. So he was just like really invested and it seems like it was kind of a passion project from his perspective. Yeah. I think the production company had recently been acquired or something like that. And some of the staff was concerned that they were just going to like gut it and lay off a bunch of people. So they wanted to get something in production quickly to let them know like, hey, like, no, we're we're taking this seriously. 
and Wicker Man was that movie. So I think Christopher mm-hmm. Lee, kind of in an act of goodwill, was like, oh, "Look, I'll do this without getting paid. Like, let's get this, yeah, get this out the door." And yeah, it was unclear to me how truly how influential he was in the creation because, yeah, he basically came to I think Anthony Schaefer and was yeah. like, "Hey, I don't want to be copy or uh, what's the word." Not copyrighted. <laughs> oh, uh, where you're like, like stuck pigeonholed, in pigeonholed, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, there's another Type word casted. I'm looking for that. Typecasted. Thank you. As like this hammer horror guy, these schlocker horror movies, schlocky horror movies of the like 60s and stuff. And I want to do a more serious role. And eventually that turned into this, which was based on a novel, by the way. Um, I can't remember if I said that or not. It was based on the 1967 novel. Ritual by David Penner. So Mm -hmm. I think they had this idea. They wanted to do some sort of movie, maybe involved involving paganism or something. And then Schaefer read this book and was like, hey, this is this is a thing we could do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Christopher Lee, it sounds like it was there early on. Uh, yeah, as, far, as part of the creation here, and then yeah, just the, the other thing that I, I found surprising outside of Christopher Lee, no one else really between the director, the writer, uh, or like any of the other creators, cinematographer, have really a horror uh, like um, filmography on 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 their books. Uh, did you notice that? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what makes this makes this movie so uh, distinct. Yeah, right, right. It's almost like uh, maybe no one has seen a horror film in this group except for Christopher <laughs> They sing in horror movies, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Songs are a big thing. And corn is really important, I think, uh, in horror yeah, films. Yeah, there's got to be corn rigs and barley. Yeah, yeah, that's what I know of horror. Whatever whatever corn rigs are, we got to have them. <laughs> yep. Uh, no, that's all the background I have. All right, well, as usual, our Ohio connection comes from our friend Alex, who connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you're in the area and you like great food and great drinks, swing on by Jukebox. And Alex says, The Wicker Man is a British folk horror film directed by Robin Hardy, starring Edward Woodward, Britt Eklund, and Christopher Lee. Britt Eklund is a Swedish actress, model, and singer who appeared in numerous films throughout the 1960s and 70s, including roles in the 1971 crime film Get Carter, which established her as a sex symbol. In June 1973, Eklund had a son, Nikolai Adler, with longtime American record producer Lou Adler. Adler was the co-owner of the legendary Roxy Theater in West Hollywood and produced for a number of iconic musical artists, including the Grassroots, Jan and Dean, the Mamas and the Papas, and Carol King. For his musical accomplishments, Adler was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013, winning that year's Amit Erdogan Award for Lifetime Achievement. Amit Erdogan served as the chairman of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum located in Cleveland, Ohio. Nice. Wow. We got connection. there. Yeah. Good job, Alex. Actually, even a better connection than maybe Alex knew, maybe she, he did know this, but Britt Eklund and, and Lou Adler, as, as he said, had a son, and she was pregnant with him during the scene where she dances around naked in this movie, so right. a, a body double was used for some of that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, wait, what's the connection there for Ohio? The body double is from Ohio? Um, boy, how did we get there? No, not the body <laughs> double. Her, um... Yeah, her son, uh... Her husband, the person oh. she had a son with... Yeah. ...co-owned the Roxy Theater and Got produced it. for a bunch of musical artists. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he won a 
Lifetime Achievement Award that was named after, yeah. Got it. Yeah. No, sorry. I, I thought you had another connection to Ohio, but... Uh, oh, no, no. Oh. Basically, just Adler was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Hey, yeah. uh, about Brit, um, was she... Is she the one who they dubbed her voiceover in this film? Like, it's not actually her... Uh, like, she was a dancer, and they used her for that scene... I think the singing was definitely not her, but I'm not sure about her dialogue. Oh, okay, okay. I thought I, I read, like, whoever that... Yeah, she's Willow, right? Yes, Willow, yeah. the landlord's daughter. Yeah, I think I thought I read somewhere maybe, like, her voice uh, might have been also dubbed in this film, but I don't know. Okay, gotcha. It's possible. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Well, let's walk through the plot in detail. We're going to spoil everything, everybody, so go see this movie if you don't want to have it spoiled for you. Before we do that, buddy, do you mind if I step away for just a quick second here? I got to go take care of something. Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'll be right back. Okay, everybody. I'm back, and this is a little bit awkward. When I stepped back into my little recording booth, I caught Ashvin on our video chat naked and writhing around singing about how he wanted me to come be with him. <laughs> yeah. Are you I was only gone for like a minute or two. <laughs> yeah, I can't even believe you got your clothes off that fast. I know. I was waiting for you to step out so I could surprise you with it. <laughs> Just rip them away and yep. start that writhing. Catch you by surprise. Can't say no. Yeah. <laughs> Are you with child, by the way? <laughs> Thanks for noticing. Appreciate that. All right. So this movie, speaking of, speaking of Blair Witch Project, the movie start with, starts with some text on the screen that says, the producer would like to thank the Lord Summer Isle and the people of his island off the west coast of Scotland for this privileged insight into their religious practices and for their generous cooperation in the making of this film. That's kind so of a... Yeah, <laughs> That was a little like, hey, uh, you're supposed to believe this is real? Yeah, that's really weird, right? Because who would be shooting it? Or like, yeah, who would have been like walking around with the video camera? Uh, Like, why would this have been like factual, uh, like a factual movie? Yeah, and then they went on to say like, uh, although, I mean, I guess it could be a fictional work, but based off of research that they did with that community. Oh, on like a real community. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, 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 right. Right. I mean, that, that's not a real community, but yeah. as yeah. far as I know. Yeah, I assumed. Uh, I guess I never like uh, double-clicked on that to, to assume. But, but yeah, we're, we're sure it isn't a real island, right? I'm pretty confident. Okay. Watch somebody from Scotland is going to say, hey, <laughs> yeah. it is. We exist. Uh, yeah. This was filmed in Scotland and in some islands of Scotland, but sure. yeah, not this, this specific island doesn't exist, and I don't think there's a Lord Summer Isle. Right. Um, another odd thing thing in the opening credits and i swear i'll get through the to the plot here it says anthony schaefer is the wicker man oh. don't often see the writer like having possession of the movie in that mm-hmm. yeah sense. yeah wow yeah good for him um the first shots are some aerial views of this scottish island and a small plane piloted by our main character sergeant howie uh, as it lands right off the coast of the island and some Irish folk music plays, and we hear this song repeatedly played in the film, like we said earlier. The lyrics are, Corn rigs and barley, I'll not forget that happy night among the leaves with Annie. <laughs> I, 
It doesn't that, seem that pertinent to the plot, but... Yeah, and that's an original song for this film, I think, right? I believe so. There was a little bit of a... They took some... Either the melody or the lyrics from another song. It's not wholly original. Okay. I think the specific instance of it is for this film. Got it. So upon landing, Sergeant Howie is told by the harbor master that he cannot land here without rigid permission. And he says, hey, I'm here on police business. I've received reports of a missing child in an anonymous letter that was addressed specifically to me. So I'm here to check it out. Once he gets on land, he shows all these dudes who have gathered around a picture of the girl. He says, you know, he got a letter saying she is missing. And her name is Rowan Morrison. He passes around the picture, and they all claim they've never seen her, she doesn't belong to this island, etc., etc. But we see them kind of smiling as he walks away, so our suspicions are raised early on. And we learn that there is a May Morrison on the island, but the men insist that this is not her daughter. So how he finds May, and he meets her daughter, who is not Rowan, and May insists that she has no other daughter. But when speaking to May or to May's daughter, rather, how he learns that he can find Rowan playing in the fields. But unfortunately for him, Rowan is a hare, <laughs> as in a rabbit. Yeah. And so we get a brief glimmer of hope there that's immediately snuffed out. So are you kind of, I know this is your second time watching. I feel like we're getting enough planted in our heads that like something is up here, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I felt pretty convinced at this point. I mean, obviously we've seen it, so we, we know what happens here. But uh, first time watching it, I mean, uh, I'm wondering why is he so convinced that like there's legitimacy to this note that he's received, this anonymous note. If like everyone's telling him this person they've never seen doesn't exist, he's talking to the mother and she's saying, no, that's my daughter over there and she's fine and there's no like girl. So uh, for me at this point, I'm, I'm thinking like, yeah, if I'm if I'm that police officer, I'm like questioning the validity of like the, the thing I have and I'm ready to get out of there because I've done my job. But you feel like there's clues here uh, that make this suspicious? Yeah, and, like, why is it addressed specifically to me? Yeah. Like, why would anyone write a letter straight up to me instead of just, like, dear police department? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that, that that is pretty weird. But at this point, like, now you've asked, like, 10 people... They don't know who that person is. So do you just stay there and keep investing to, like, dig into it? Or do you be like, oh, yeah, someone's just playing a joke on me. I I might as well head home now. Yeah, I mean, I think he sees through some of this weird shit, and he gets more and more suspicious and, like, insistent upon figuring this out. What He's uh, kind of a stubborn character. uh, Yeah, he's a stubborn character. But in the audience, like, in in our shoes, like, what are you thinking? Like, uh, what is suspicious here? Is anything suspicious? I I just, like, yeah, there, there was a... A girl who was taken or murdered, and people are covering it up, and we don't know why yet. You can already tell that? That was, I mean, that was what I thought the first time around, just with these dudes smirking and, you know, oh, there's a Rowan, but it's a hare, and just, yeah, they're they're painting, they're giving us clues that something is amiss. Huh, okay, yeah, I I didn't get that at all from the town sweep. I thought they were being pretty friendly, answering his questions, seemed pretty honest, like, uh, this little girl, obviously, she's not going to lie to him uh, and be like, no, I don't have a sister and uh, it's it's a rabbit. So, I don't know. If I was him, I would have been convinced that, that someone's just playing a prank on me. Yeah. Children never lie. Exactly. Um, Howie needs a place to stay on the island, so he shows up at the Green Man Inn where he asks for dinner and a room. Howie is pretty uncomfortable with the whole situation at this inn, 
the landlord says his daughter will show him to his room, and the entire pub breaks into a song about how hot the landlord's daughter is, <laughs> complete with innuendos about boners and her vagina. Oh, man. And the landlord and their da- and the daughter are just kind of smiling and bobbing their heads along to the song. <laughs> that scene cracks you up. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's like a bunch of old people like singing yep. this song. It's so creepy. <laughs> Disturbing. And and just like the so much of this movie is Sergeant Howie just appalled at the behavior and culture of these people so he's got a in this like cut the shit everybody moment he silences the whole bar and passes around this picture of Rowan Morrison of course nobody recognizes her we also see some photos on the wall of the different girls who were crowned the May Queen each year on this island but last year's photo is missing and the men in the pub claim that it was broken so they had to take it down Another thing that Howie finds unusual is that this island is known for its produce, and all the food that he's being served for dinner is canned food. So we'll put a pin in that. Yeah. Um, hey, do you feel like Howie's a bit of an asshole? Like coming here with like a like so, something on his shoulder? I, n- I never considered him to be an asshole, but he's extremely uptight and uh, a devout Christian, and his Christianity is easily offended, and he quick he's quick to outrage. Yeah, yes, Christianity's off. Yeah, that's obviously a sensitive topic for him. I also think there's that dynamic of like he's coming from the city or whatever, like a, a more urban setting, and he thinks like because he has like the law on his side, he can like he wields like this power over these people. And uh, I think you kind of see them like I, I get the sense like they're not. Uh, like giving him the respect that he thinks he deserves. So uh, I think he's got a bit of an air to him and like an arrogance. Yeah, he's a, I mean, he's an excellently written character in my mind because we don't get any real big exposition drops on him all at once, but we can tell by his actions and how he interacts with these people that he is nothing if not a patriot of Scotland and a Christian. Yeah. And if you think that, you do not operate under God's laws or under Scotland's laws, then like you're you're on his bad side. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's here to remind them of both those things. <laughs> yeah, and it, and he's got like a pretty high bar for like food. Uh, he turns his nose up to canned food. He's a foodie. He's a foodie. Yeah, he's came here expecting something elegant. <laughs> you know all this patriotic Christian foodies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the Green Man was a. a topic of discussion in our men review. Right. What was it? Was there a, a bar in, in that town too called the Green Men? Um, no, but the the whole like supernatural element of that movie was kind of a reference to this uh, Green Man folklore. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and uh, sorry to go back to the full core conversation. Would you put men in there? I, I was just thinking, I don't know if we had that conversation about men. I think it's close, but maybe no cigar on that one. Mm, okay. I'll have to go back and listen to the men episode to see. Yeah, yeah. So I think I saw that on the list here too as well. Gotcha. Um, Howie steps outside the pub into the night air and sees a naked woman sprawled out upon a grave, and we get a flashback to him at Sunday service back on the mainland. Basically just so much in this movie is letting us know and understand more and more how much Howie fucking hates it here. <laughs> and it's just getting angrier and angrier. Every, everything happening is an affront to his religion, and he doesn't understand what the hell's wrong with these people. Mm-hmm. 
That night, as he's trying to get some sleep, the pub patrons begin singing yet another song, and the landlord's daughter is in the room next door, thumping on Howie's wall and singing for him to come over and say, how do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is, I think this song is called the landlord's, or maybe Willow's song. Oh. And the sneaker pimps covered it and called it how do. Oh, cool. Have you heard the cover? No, I meant to listen before this episode, but I think I probably will check it out soon. Yeah, I check that out. And she's naked the entire time she sings this. I didn't mention that. It may seem innocent. Like, come on over and say how do, but she's butt naked, <laughs> writhing against the wall next to Howie's, uh, slapping her own ass. Pretty wild. Uh, I'd say a lot of similarities with Midsommar in the uh, temptation of a newcomer by a woman in the community and like trying to coax him into making love to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, w- I don't know if we mentioned this in the Midsommar episode, but this dude, you know, his defining characteristic is his Christianity. Right. And Midsommar, the main, the lead male character's name is Christian. Oh, wow. Cool. Good tie. I also was thinking they both of these movies are about a culture that deals with a certain taboo topic way more openly than our culture does. So Death or uh, procreation? I think procreation for the Wicker Man and death for Midsommar. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Clearly uh, they handle procreation differently in Midsommar too, but yeah. the sex isn't the crux of that film. It's about their relationship with death in my mind. Yeah, and in this film too, I think there's a, a comment on death as well, isn't there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, both of them. Just uh, weird, not weird, but unusually open-mindedness around sex and death in both yeah, films. Yeah, right. Um. Howie is struggling to resist the temptation. He breaks out in a sweat and whatnot, uh, but he does resist, just like I did when I walked in on Ashvin. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> and then they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't see my sweat. Uh, <laughs> Ashvin, what? what <laughs> Stop yeah. it. We can play flustered over there. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the next morning, the landlord's daughter asks, hey, like, why didn't you come over last night? I was calling you over. And he explains he's engaged. And she says he shouldn't let that stop him. And he responds that he doesn't believe in sex before marriage. She says, if you feel like that, you really don't want to be around here on May Day. Hint, hint. Yeah, that comes up quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, we get another quick musical number with some children around a maypole. That's the third one in the film so far. And then the next day, Howie continues to investigate, and he gets another slap in the face uh, when he overhears a school teacher telling the children that the maypole symbolizes a penis and uh, stands for the generative force in nature. More, more themes of procreation like in the movie Men. Howie's outraged again, and he passes the picture of Rowan around the class, and the children all deny knowing her, but... His suspicions are raised when he sees one empty desk in the classroom. He forces his way into the teacher's files and finds on her attendance records that Rowan, in fact, was a student of hers, and he calls the teacher and the students despicable liars. (laughs) And (laughs) he concludes that Rowan is dead, but the teacher says, around here they don't really use that word. Rowan has returned to the earth. So, like you said, Ash, they've got a different attitude about death here as well. Yeah. I don't know about you, but at this point in the movie's journey, I'm just kind of loving watching Sergeant Howie sink further into his fuck this place attitude. 
Yeah, I'm I'm mixed because like uh, yeah, he's uh, hating it and is getting anger and anger. Uh, I'm I'm you're fucking loving it though. You want to live there? (laughs) Yeah, this place sounds awesome to me. (laughs) But uh, I think I I struggle up until this point. Like yeah, once he finds that name on the uh, on the roster, then like yeah, okay, fine, something uh, is amiss here. But until this point, he's just been this angry, disgruntled dude who's, like, been here and realized that, like, maybe this note he got uh, wasn't a legitimate note. And, and uh, he's been here, like, on a hoax. And I'm surprised he's even, like, still in this town. Like, why hasn't he gone back to the mainland yet? Like, yeah, aren't you surprised that he's uh, still going around investigating when he's been... Like, he's now, like, asked, like, I don't know, 20, 30 people. And everyone's like, yeah, this person doesn't exist. What's what's his motivation to keep going here? I'm see I'm on a different page than you because I I mean everyone's asked, acting suspicious as hell like they are they aren't even really taking it seriously they're not like oh no like that's horrible but I'm sorry I don't recognize her they're just like nope never seen her <laughs> <laughs> and then the picture on the wall is missing it's yeah. just it's all very suspicious to me. really wow okay okay I thought that was like more than enough proof points to be like alright I've done my job here it's time to go home so I, I'm a little confused like why he he like yeah he's in a place that he's hating obviously it's like against everything he stands for and he's on this quest to like find this person who everyone has told him doesn't exist uh, but I guess I guess it it, it, was, it wasn't for nothing he's like I, I don't know if I can withstand another night of that ass slapping without <laughs> yeah. giving in I think it's like a psychological horror. Like if a psychological horror movie is a descent into madness, this is like a descent into mad. (laughs) He's just getting angrier and angrier. Yeah. Yeah. Just one thing after another, pissing him off. And (laughs) and now he knows like there's some kind of conspiracy. So that's got to be pretty upsetting. Right. Right. And he shows up at the graveyard where she's buried beneath a tree I wasn't quite understanding this, but it's like a piece of her belly button skin hangs from the tree or yeah, something? Yeah, I couldn't tell what that was, yeah. Something. I thought they called it a navel streak, but I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, pretty gross. And a man there tells her she's been dead, or tells uh, Howie that she's been dead for six or seven months. He finds another grave that says the entombed is protected by the ejaculation of serpents. Did you catch that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish good. the same for you when you die, but hey, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. And uh, he's outraged to find that one grave has a crate of rotten apples carelessly stacked on top of it. So he destroys the crate and fashions it into a makeshift cross, which oh, he man. places upon the grave. That was like such an angry scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes like an angry cross with it. <laughs> it's funny because I it wasn't monotonous to me as I was watching the movie, but now I'm like, wow, every single plot point is just about him being angered that this isn't Christian and, and right. getting pissed. Yeah. Anyway, he keeps angrily searching around town for more information to no avail, and he eventually gets an audience with the leader of the island, Lord Summerisle himself, played by Christopher Lee. And as Howie awaits Lord Summerisle, he looks out the window to see the film's fourth musical number as some naked women sing to bring health to one of them who is pregnant. And when Lord Summerisle arrives, he says to Howie, hey, I trust the sight of those... Young people refreshes you, and Howie responds, no, sir. It does not refresh me. <laughs> and uh, so he kind of gives his spiel to Lord Summerisle about how you people are living like heathens, and he demands that he take the body of Rowan back to the mainland for investigation, and Lord Summerisle's just like, fine, go for it, whatever. We don't murder around here. Um, the two of them have some debates about religion, and Summerisle tells Howie that here, the old gods, the old gods aren't dead, 
and that what Howie calls the true God had his chance and he blew it. Mm-hmm. And we learn that Lord Summerisle's grandfather bought this island in 1868 and kind of undertook it as an agricultural project where he grew new strains of fruits and vegetables. And to get the population on board with his pursuits and rouse them from their apathy, he gave them their old gods back. So he tells Howie he was raised to love, praise, and appease nature when necessary, to which Howie angrily yells, You're a pagan! (laughs) Do do you have anything to add to this, you know, religious debate that they had here or anything that struck you? Yeah, I I think the the biggest surprise for me here is uh, the way they're talking about religion, like Howie's version of like, you know, this being like a a Christian place and Scotland being like a Christian country versus like the religion that people are practicing on this island. Uh, I would have thought the old religion was what like Howie's going around like, proclaiming whereas like yeah for in our modern times i feel like what these guys on the island are doing or how they're acting is feels like more liberal or modern compared to uh howie but then it's interesting to hear in this conversation it sounds like howie thinks he's like the progressive one and these guys are living in the old time but yeah that, that kind of hit me what, what about you yeah and i mean i think the hippie movement of the 60s was kind of a bit like that, like, hey, back in the day, we worshipped nature, and we want to get back to that. Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, what's old is new again, kind of. And I think this pairs well with the exorcist and the omen, the omen and just all the discussions we've had over the years about how God is dead, or is God dead, was kind of a question mark of the 70s or late 60s, just, you know, mm-hmm. re- religious religiousness kind of declined and the boomers grew up and started questioning the way they were raised. And I think this kind of could be plopped into that, that line of movies. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you have a, a culture of people here who, yeah, it's have like moved on past God and now are like embracing the older traditions or like the older uh, beliefs. Yeah. And then Summerisle is an interesting figure and could kind of spark a debate or a theme of just like, Hey, is, the religion, any religion, just the people in power manipulating us. Like, he's basically like, oh, my grandfather gave them their old gods back because uh, that would win him some favor. So, mm, yeah. Interesting. It's like, is it uh, truly a religion? I mean, it is, obviously, but. Yeah. It's like a crowd pleaser to get people to do what you want them to do. It's just kind of like how how in control are we of what we believe or are the billionaires and the people in power pushing a culture on us without us even knowing it and right. being glad that we're distracted by it. And yeah. has religion always been a distraction to a certain extent to get people to put their heads down and work? For sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of this movie is about like scapegoating and like being able to point the finger at like something else for being wrong. And uh, yeah, I feel like religion can be one of those. And so, uh, yeah, here it sounds like they're using uh, Christianity as a scapegoat and saying, look, we're going to give you the, the old gods back. Yeah, right. Things are going wrong because anything that your leadership did, it's just, yeah. you know, God works in mysterious ways. And uh, yeah, it's a, it could be perceived as a strategy to appease the everyday folk. Yeah, they'll leave that it's up. 2023 or 1973. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah, yeah. Find something else to blame. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, Howie proceeds to Rowan's grave so he can take the bodies back to the mainland with Summer Isle's permission. Because uh, I think he does find out where it actually is, um, maybe from somewhere out. But yeah. he finds the real grave, and it's only the body of a hare. 
So further investigation unearthed the photo of last year's May Queen, and it is none other than Rowan, surrounded by empty food crates. So this and some other research at the library, of course there's a local <laughs> library. It's crazy how often there's a library in the second act of a movie. <laughs> the horror film, yeah. I know. Yeah. But basically, Howie gets clued into the fact that the harvest failed last year, and to appease the old gods, a sacrifice must be made at this year's festival, and he believes that that sacrifice is going to be Rowan. She must be alive somewhere on the island. So he basically thinks he needs outside help for this and goes back to his airplane and realizes that it's been disabled by the islanders. And he's like, whatever, fuck you guys. I'm going to figure this out myself. And we get a slightly zany montage of him searching every house he can with uh, the townspeople kind of goading him on and teasing him as he does so. <laughs> yeah. This, like, some of these sequences, uh, like him at the library or him, like, going into people's houses and, like, kids, like, playing pranks on him, uh, these are played for, like, comedic effect, right? I got to believe at least a little bit. The library scene feels a little, like, generic compared to the rest of the movie. Um, it's almost in, like, a disappointing way, but then this montage, I think, is just a... A bit of a unique British take on humor. <laughs> yeah. And also just like a part of the plot. It's just like this dude is just at the whim of this town and they are just fucking with him. Yeah, right, right. And he's just digging himself deeper. Yeah, yeah. I feel like as an audience here, uh, at least I was feeling like you're in like so much trouble. You're like in way over your head. You're one person against this whole town that's just like kind of messing with you uh i don't know i like would you say like this this sounds like a very scary scenario to be in but do you feel like any of this is being played for a horror at this point or suspense i uh, know i think the horror if it's there is very subtle it's more like a paranoia yeah exactly but is the film creating that atmosphere of paranoia or do you think as the audience like you really have to think about like what would it feel like to be in his shoes and you have to kind of like create that sense of paranoia yourself Yes and no. I both. I don't think anything's being done with the film in terms of settings, score, uh, editing to make you right scared. It's not like there aren't any cues that like this is supposed to be scary. Something's amiss. Exactly. But I think the performance and the character give you enough to be scared because mm. you're in it with this guy. I think even if you're not. 100% a fan of him. Yeah, I, I get it. You're in it with him. But I, th I think the weird part there is he doesn't seem scared at all. He's like so stubborn and like so like, oh, I'm the law. No one's going to mess with me. I can, I got, you know, all, all the power uh, is in my hands. So he's going around like with this kind of like false sense of confidence and him not being scared. I wonder then are we like missing out on that feeling of like, fear paranoia suspense like holy shit i'm in this place and i'm like one man in this whole town's against me yeah i think that maybe i'm reading too much into it or creating my own theories but it's almost like the way he experiences or shows fear is not the way other people do like all he's got is this stubbornness and doubling down yeah because what else can he really do they disable this plane Right. So right. it almost seems like a bit of a frantic montage. Like, oh, sure. Yep. What else am I going to do but figure this out? Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It seems like but, that's how, him as a person, like, that's how he would react. 
Yeah, and uh, for I think everyone watching could interpret that differently or feel differently about it, depending on how you feel about the movie and Howie and and whatnot. Yeah, I just think like a traditional horror film, like yeah, would have amped up like this segment where like now we know there's a conspiracy. Uh, now and and like I think when he gets in the plane, suddenly we see these masks like pop up, like which which those are like kind of those are like the first kind of creepy thing I think. That yeah, I guess I will I will uh, temper what I said with that. Yeah, those masks are actually scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those I, I guess those were there for some effect that that worked. Yeah. Um. What was I gonna say? Yeah, the, you're right. It's not a typical horror film, and I think that's what I like about it. It's so yeah unique. Right. Yep. And I think that's what's a little bit unique about some folk horror too is that. So much of it happens during the daytime in a lot of these movies, especially Midsommar. So yeah. it isn't the the trappings and the typical settings of a horror film oftentimes. It's, right. Uh, which can be striking and creepy in its own way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just like its own brand of unsettling. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, he's not finding anything. The May Day Festival is beginning shortly. So he uh, decides, all right, I, I got to get to the bottom of this another way. He knocks unconscious the innkeeper and steals his costume uh, so that he can participate in the May Day Festival in this disguise of Punch, who's kind of like a fool type character in their traditions or folklore. And he's hoping he's going to find Rowan this way. And yeah, his mask is scary. All these old-timey masks they have for this May Day Festival are pretty creepy. At one point during the festival, Rowan reveals herself. So Howie has finally found her alive after all of this searching. He removes his mask, rushes over to her, and she says, Hurry, Mr. Policeman, I don't like it here. And he tries to run away with her. But he soon learns, yeah, this whole thing was a trap. Rowan runs up to Lord Summer Isle and says, did I do it right? <laughs> so she was in on it even. And then Summer Isle says to a bewildered Howie, welcome, fool. You have come of your own free will to the appointed place. And he tells him, look, buddy, we've controlled your every movement since you've been on this island. Uh, and after that crop failure, we need a very specific sacrifice and we need an adult man who has come of his own free will, a man who has come here with the power of a king. And since he works for the police, he kind of has that power, a virgin. Uh, and check that box mm-hmm. as much, much as Britt Eklund tried. Yeah. And a man who has come here as a fool. And he's dressed as the character Punch, who's the role of the fool in the May Day Festival. So, yeah, that box is checked, too. Before we get to this climax here, do you think the landlord's daughter didn't want him to be sacrificed and that's why she was tempting him? Or was oh. it to confirm, yeah, he's a virgin, he's uh, we're good to go? Yeah, I was wondering about that because that could have changed the course of everything, right? Like if he had just gone into the other room. Uh, but no, I, I, I think it was uh, to prove uh, he was a virgin. Um, though it sounds like it was a win-win scenario potentially uh, where... Well, I don't know. It depends on what her feelings were towards him. But yeah, I feel like it was like a testing him to like prove that, yeah, he's he's a virgin and he's like abstaining from doing anything. But what, what do you think? Uh, he, I don't know, to be honest, because like, yeah, just because you're tempting someone doesn't mean they're going to confess to you that they're a virgin or that they're saving themselves for marriage. They could just say, sorry, I'm with someone else or 
Yeah. That's Sorry, true. this feels inappropriate. <laughs> I'm a police officer on an investigation. <laughs> and yeah. you're slapping your own ass singing a song and <laughs> the whole bar's sharing a song. It feels a little weird. <laughs> yeah. That song really did you a disservice. <laughs> kind of turned me off from this idea. I was going to, but this is all yeah. just a little too weird. Yeah, yeah. I, d- I don't know. I, I guess, like, uh, maybe she was, like, so attractive and, like, so sure that, like, only someone who's, like, a virgin uh, and, like, holding to that belief wouldn't, like, give in to come into this room and, and uh, yeah, ma- make uh, love to me uh, would, would like, not do that. Like, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It c- could have been an fair, ultimate Fair test. argument, Britt Eklund. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, but, 1973, Britt Eklund. Exactly. But, yeah, what would have happened if he had gone to that room? Then, like, they would have just called the whole thing off. And, yeah, end of the movie. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, next time, let's uh, let's try a different approach. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so, uh, yeah, things aren't going well here for Sergeant Howie. Summer Ohio tells him he will die, and he'll be reborn as their crops, and that he's got a date with the Wicker Man. And so begins a scene where they are prepping him for a sacrifice. He's muttering prayers to himself. He's telling Summerisle that the crops failed because they weren't meant to be grown here and that his people are going to kill him next year if the crops fail again. And you see some doubt in Summerisle's eyes when he's kind of giving him that rant, right? Oh, like, you think so? A little bit of nervousness? I think maybe. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Uh, I, kinda, I I thought like the way he responded was like so confident, like, no, the, the crops are going to come. Uh, we're not going to be in a, a, another kind of famine or anything. So yeah, I, I thought like, uh, Christopher Lee's performance here was just like this really, uh, what do you call, like a cult leader mindset of like, usually cult leaders don't have, I feel like a lot of doubt or aren't second guessing themselves, are they? Yeah. I mean, I think they are internally, but never Public. acknowledging it. Yeah. Um, oh, so you think like, like I, I think there was just something behind his eyes in his performance that said maybe like. Yeah, things aren't going so great, and I'm really hoping this works. Yeah, but I I feel like as a cult leader, like you'd feel confident enough, like yeah, it's probably not going to work, but I know I can trick these people into doing something else and like finding someone else to blame next year. Like this can't be his first time convincing them of something, right? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, we know he doesn't. It seems like he doesn't really believe in the old gods, but, but in a way, maybe so because he he says he was raised to worship nature, but mm. to me, that's different than believing in the old gods like sure. i don't think he's as bought in as the rest of the gang okay okay he knows like he's using it to manipulate everyone i think so yep um and then the most iconic moment of the whole film is when Howie finally sees the wicker man which is a a wooden structure in the shape of a, a man it's gigantic that he's going to be burned alive in and he just starts freaking out, and he's going, "Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ!" <laughs> and uh, his acting here is on point to me, man. Yeah, yeah. And then there's these animals in the Wicker Man too that are going to be sacrificed with him. They're braying and stuff, and and he's you know saying, "The Lord is my shepherd," muttering prayers to himself. They light the thing on fire, and these animals are making desperate noises. To me, the sound design paired with the editing here just amps up the intensity. Yeah, and the visual is so cool of that uh, Wicker Man. Yeah, man, it looks like he's actually in the thing as it right. burns. Like, yeah. I'm wondering how they did that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And uh, the people of the island are playing some festive music. I think that's maybe the fifth musical number. <laughs> uh, as things burn and, uh, you know, Howie 
goes up in flames in there, and eventually the Wicker Man collapses in a blaze of fire, and uh, the movie ends. Yeah, his his last words uh, are like pleading to Jesus, basically, right? Like saying, uh, "Oh God!" And like it's it's almost like a battle between him and Lord Summer of like where he's going to go after his death. There's like a bit of a back and forth. It's like, no, I'm going to go to heaven, and he's like, no, unfortunately, you're not going to go to heaven. And he's like, no, I am. And uh, yeah, does that get kind of uh, repetitive? Yeah, he's kind of like, I'm not going to come back as a bloody crate of apples or whatever he says. Yeah. Um, you know, for I feel in my plot walkthrough that that theme is repetitive of just him, like, and his Christianity. But I didn't feel like it was in the movie just because he's so closely identified with that and so outraged at every new thing he sees that it feels more organic. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, Um, that becomes his character, basically. Yeah, right. I didn't think it was monotonous or repetitive. And I thought just everything about this last scene was incredible. But do you think it was as well and... The whole movie is so free of horror that is this enough? Like, does it does it pack enough of a punch to save the day horror-wise? Yeah, I mean, uh, I do think it's a little repetitive because, like, yeah, I get it. The whole movie, he's on his high horse and, like, touting his beliefs and ideologies. But I feel like when you're there at the point of death and now, like, your life is, like, at dan- in danger, I feel like that's where, like, maybe your character would break and, like, he would start to, like, be like, ah, oh, you know, like, talk about... Uh, you know what people usually say when they're about to be killed like oh I've got kids or like I'll uh, this you know they just try to like squirm their way out of it but he like hey, the I, fact I that like he's... apples <laughs> yeah, like, yeah exactly I'll, I'll, I'll find you a bunch right of now, apples <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so I, I'm surprised like I, I feel like they maybe took it a little too far like even down to his death he's still like on this horse about Christianity and like his last words are about where he's going to go in the afterlife and that kind of thing so that felt a little bit unbelievable uh, and then, yeah, does the scene uh, bring the scares that the rest of the movies? I, you know, it's it's yeah, I think you're right. It's like visually and editing wise, it's a really cool visual, but uh, still, like, I'm not sure if this like the scariness of like the last sequence here, town people in masks, this guy being killed and like uh, being like offered up as a sacrifice. Like, I, I feel like it never gets like very like scary as much as it is more just unsettling and disturbing. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are different brands of scary, I suppose, but very unsettling to me and unnerving. Just the sense of paranoia around all this and these people in these masks and not knowing what they're really going to do. There's a scene where they're like, you got to step in a little triangle of swords and you might get decapitated. And it looks like they do decapitate someone, but it was just a joke. That was really cool. I this like whole that. town with their beliefs askew. You just never know what they're going to do. And Midsommar is the same way. It's just like people can seem sweet enough, but like what are they plotting? What are they capable of? Are they going to slit the person next to them's throat at any given point in time? Yeah. So I think it's scary in that way. I think it's paranoia-inducing. And I think watching his fear, a guy who, yeah, wasn't afraid the whole time and who, if he was, just showed it by digging himself even deeper and like fighting harder to get through this now is just terrified and like begging to his God for mercy. And Mm -hmm. it's a power, it's powerful to me. And I think if he caved and was like, no, no, I've got kids and talked his way out of it, it would make him less sympathetic of a character. Like you would feel more 
like this guy's an asshole coming in here with his beliefs. He doesn't even believe them. Yeah. But I think that he is, his utter sincerity makes him more of a sympathetic character, even if you're on the side of like, just let these people have sex out in the open grass. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah, just leave, let it go, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. That sincerity go, goes till the end. It's just, uh, for me, like, is, is that a realistic sincerity? Like, a, is that believable that someone would be yeah. that hardcore even like till the end? Oh, yeah, for sure. Under pressure. He's devout. Yeah. yeah they, I, I mean, it's not like there's, he's not strategically believing it. I mean, some people, I think, try to convince themselves they believe and always harbor doubts. But I think a lot of people, yeah, 100% on board. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. Are you thinking that he would give in because he doesn't necessarily believe those things as wholeheartedly as he's trying to say he does? Or he would give in just because he's so desperate, like he would be lying to get out of it? Uh, I think he would be lying to get out of it to like preserve his life. I don't think there's any... What lie could he tell that would worm his way out of that? Yeah, like I've got a bunch of apples at home that I can bring you guys. Or or I'm not a virgin, I lied. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But, yeah, but yeah, he's, he's a pretty... They'd uh, probably give it a try anyway at that point. <laughs> They've got all the animals in position. <laughs> they, they, they'd probably test him, like ask him to explain the female anatomy and find out that he was lying. And presumably they had researched... They had done their homework because they sought him out specifically with that letter. Yeah, that was a crazy twist. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, he's, uh, it, it is pretty, like him, I don't know if, if he's going out on a high note or whatever, but he's going out like on his principle. And it is like an amazing performance on, on his part to suddenly be like so frantic or like to be like kind of wailing here. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I think uh, his, his performance and Christopher Lee's, I think, are, are definitely what carries this film, right? I agree. I 100% agree. I also think that, I mean, those, yes, those are core parts of what makes this a great movie, but the whole thing has such an otherworldly feel to it. Like, props to Robin Hardy and the entire creative team for just making this such a unique experience of a movie to me. It's a, even, even when you compare it to the other two, the Unholy Trinity, it's, it's very unlike any other horror movie I've seen. Unless it's like kind of copying this movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, it, on, on the surface, it's such like a simple story and like narrative. It's just like a detective trying to like get to the bottom of something and suddenly like the whole town is like uh, trying to kill him, which is really cool. It, it plays out really well. Um, but, you know, in terms of creating a unique tone or atmosphere, do you think that was purposeful or does it go to, I, I think what, what I was calling out earlier is like none of these people have ever worked on a horror film before, so they just didn't know how to make one. And so accidentally they took a, a horror novel and just made it like a normal movie and it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah, it could be. And I mean, just like the people there doing things that aren't normally done in day-to-day life, like all these songs and all this nudity and yeah. all the weird offbeat things that people are saying yeah but i, I think I, it's the story itself too even yeah. though you're right the plot is super basic plot is basic but yeah yeah the, the story is, is really cool and interesting but uh yeah it almost feels like they purposefully didn't like go to like a lot of the horror tropes of like nighttime shots or like very suspenseful moments or music and uh yeah you get this very like unique then product at the end but 
do you think uh, that serves the movie better than like, what if they had leaned into more of the horror elements or giving you that sense of paranoia or showing more fear in like the main character as he's going through this? Um, would that have hurt the film or made it better potentially and more like horror? To me, it might have hurt the film because it's just so organic to the story. Like, there isn't anything that is super threatening. Like, nobody's going to be in the corner with a knife or anything. The whole plot is they tricked him. They're trying to follow him, have him follow a certain amount of steps just so he can be here for the May Day Festival and walk right into their trap. And yeah. If you had scary stuff interspersed with that, it might distract from that plot, which I think is, in this case, good that it's so basic just because it's... yeah. You know, the movie has a little something up its sleeve, so I think you can be pretty straightforward with the plot for that reason. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I think, yeah, from a plot perspective, I, I think you're right. Yeah, you can't have, like, uh, scenes of, like, killers, like, hanging out or something or, like, uh, yeah, uh, someone jumping out in the dark or something. But I think what you could have had is, did you need all, uh, did the music have to be uh, <laughs> everywhere? All that? Like, you could have made this a really atmospheric, uh, scary film. Like, same exact sequences of, like, him just, like, wandering around the town doing things but you could have had like a very uh scary soundtrack potentially that just would have created this atmosphere of like uh a lot of tension which i feel like tension is missing for a lot of this film um purposely so because uh the, the movie is like around this playful mayday type uh festival but i, I think the t- for the audience uh, you, you kind of miss out on that that tension unless you felt it while you're watching it did you yeah i mean i think the tension comes from his juxtaposition his whole vibe juxtaposed with what's going on. Like, I love the musical numbers and the non-diegetic music as well. Like, it just all really fits, and it creates this whole vibe of him just being like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. That's where the scariness, I use that word kind of with a big open definition, Yeah, comes in. Like It's that difference, yeah. It's scary to him because it's, not something he's comfortable with. Yeah. And yeah. He, it does not refresh him, sir. Um, <laughs> so I think that's where the scares come in is that it's scary for our main character because it's new and different and he's threatened by it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, I, I just feel like it's more uh, he's just out of place and he's like a stickler and I'm like more on the side of the townspeople throughout this. Whereas like I, I feel like an A24 sc- uh, score even in the background here would have made me more like suspicious and like buying into like his suspicion of the town. Uh, like it would have amped up that, that feeling that our main character is, is having about like, I don't trust these people. All of this goes against what I'm like to, to me. It just reads like you're an asshole and everyone else is pretty cool actually. Yeah. I think that basically what we're trying to tell the listeners is that one of us is more sexually open than the other. <laughs> yeah. And I think you can guess <laughs> which one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of us for sure. Osman's so been like, naked. Th- yeah, for the We last. never said he put his clothes back on after that yeah. whole writhing scene. And he's Brian's been naked still sweating this whole over time. there. <laughs> yeah. He's got he's got flowers in his hair. Yeah, just been slapping my ass on repeat. Yeah. We got a Luckily, you're the one editing because there's a lot of ass slaps that need to be yeah. cut out of this. Yeah, yeah. I I I just feel like they're more with the times than than he was. And, uh, I I think that the way this movie's produced, uh, I me watching this, I felt more on their side versus his. I feel like he kind of got what he deserved at the end, but what do, what do you feel? Do you feel like he was the hero and protagonist? Yeah, I do. I do. 
really he comes into this town with a photo and like this like this ideal that like oh, i'm I, i'm the law i know what i'm doing and uh i'm here you guys are all beneath me and you have to comply to what i'm saying or i'm gonna arrest you and ultimately the joke's on him and i'm like yeah you got what you deserved man he was right though they were all obstructing justice <laughs> and a girl was missing i mean it was a trick but yeah she wasn't there was missing. something afoot he knew something was afoot and there was yeah yeah i don't know i i, I think i get i get your read yeah yeah i think he comes in uh yeah just thinking he's too smart and like ahead of the game uh and n- yeah nothing was afoot though he, he was the thing that was afoot because he came in no one had been killed there yet right had anyone been killed uh no not yet yeah right right so yeah he basically offers offers himself up as a sacrifice but R- rowan may have been killed if it didn't work out. Like, oh, yeah. It did seem like they were kind of keeping her on retainer. <laughs> In case that night of the he did go over and hook up with Willow, then yeah. Rowan was next. Yeah, I think she was their second best option. Yeah, yeah, got it. <laughs> it's a dangerous game to play. <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, let's see. Oh, Zero to five. Oh, I, I, actually, uh, one other thing. Oh, pacing. Did you feel like this movie had any pacing issues? No, but I could see the complaints. I mean, it's super slow. There's no horror pretty much the whole time, but it's a tight movie. It's about an hour and a half. There are so many different versions of this movie, so Mm. depending on which version people watch, it might be a little longer, but it's pretty much an hour and a half. Yeah, but like uh, I guess like the random songs that come in here and there and some of them like go on for like a few minutes, uh, that doesn't like kind of slow it down too much for you. Like the whole, I think the like Willow's dance, I mean, it's obviously great, but uh, it's, it's like a long... Like it's it's like a five minute song of just like her rubbing herself up against a door and him like kind of sweating on the other side. Uh, you don't think that kind of like de- pulls away from the momentum of the film? <laughs> he's he's super open with free love and sex, everybody, but he gets five m- minutes of a beautiful <laughs> naked woman gyrating, and he's like, "Geez, the pacing here!" I know. Come, Come on. on, man. Yeah, get things moving. Yeah, you, you don't feel like these things kind of slow the film down, or like when they would, yeah, just pull away from like what what he's doing and like focus on, yeah, naked women jumping over a fire, like kids around a flagpole. I don't think any of those were long enough to really uh, bother me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I felt like it's it slowed slowed down here and there. Yeah, any themes here that you, you can find other than uh, maybe you know the death of Christianity or the decline of Christianity in the seventies, and maybe the use of religion to uh, kind of control the populace and use them as pawns. Yeah, I, I think that's a big one. I also think uh, big government versus small government, because this island is like local people running it. You got this uh, bigger jurisdiction now, like coming in and like trying to insert the law on them, and they're obviously pushing back. And like they're they have opinions on him; he has opinions on them. So I, I think mm-hmm. there's some of that. Like you guys should be like this, but uh, that that outsider kind of mentality. What, what about you? You don't have enough of an understanding of the many small communities that you have jurisdiction over to have jurisdiction over all of them. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, I mean that that's a big thing in like uh, in in Europe, right? Uh, a lot of those islands like try to operate independently. They, you know, they feel pretty removed from like the mainland. Uh, I mean, I, I think sure, I guess that's all right. You've got regions trying to like secede from their yeah. their countries and fight for their cultural independence. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. What, what about you? Any other themes on your end? No, that was all I got. Uh, okay. You ready for a scale? Well, let's do it. 
All right, zero to five writhing landlord's daughters. What do you give this one? I give it three and a half writhing landlord's daughters. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think, yeah, this is a, a good horror movie conceptually. Like the idea of like what's going on is scary and uh, the ideas are pretty, like the themes are very universal. But, uh, and I, I think the movie does a really great job of being pretty unsettling and exploring like what happens when you have this clash of different societies and ideologies and you have these great strong performances by its lead actors but i i wish it like offered more of like the horror production elements and like the atmosphere uh to like make the horror feel a bit more uh real and accessible because i I think a lot of it's like me like later on thinking about yeah what would it be like to be in this guy's shoes uh but yeah three and a half for me what about you sure i give it a four out of five writhing landlord's daughters i think despite a lack of horror in the first two acts of the film It succeeds largely due to an adept performance of a well-written character, and this makes the climax feel all the more powerful and worth the wait. And we reviewed this in uh, mid to late 2017, uh, before pre-podcast, just when we were doing this for fun, Mm -hmm. and we gave it the exact same rating, 3.5 and (laughs) 4. Oh my god. Wow. Talk about consistency. Yeah, that feels kind of good. Yeah. What do you think? You think horror fans today hold this one in high regard or do you think this is one of those ones that like well regarded back in its time and maybe like these days horror audiences are beyond it i don't know man the more we do this show i'm the more i realize how many of our listeners are you know 20 years younger than us sometimes so uh i i i don't have i'm not in touch enough to know i feel like it's still very revered but among some of the people who might be watching this for the first time just because we're covering it it may not age well with them. I don't know. Yeah. Let us know, gang. Yeah. I don't know if it's still mentioned as much on the internet as it used to be. But when I was in my early 20s really digging through horror I uh, online, I often saw it spoken of with high regard. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a, a big name. But yeah, I feel like for younger generations now, Midsommar is probably the new like staple full core Right, it's almost going to be like, if you have Midsommar, why go back and watch this one? Exactly, exactly. Um, I wonder if we should review 2006's Nicolas Cage, The Wicker Man. <laughs> we should. I know, it's got like terrible reviews, but... I, I can't tell if it's going to be so bad it's good or just so bad. I know, I know. Yeah, we should check it out sometime. Yeah, yeah. All right, anything else, buddy? That's all I got. Okay, everyone, that has been our discussion of The Wicker Man. Happy 50th anniversary to The Wicker Man. And if you want to connect with us, go to horrormovieclub.com. You can click on the social links drop down to find links to our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where we announce what we're covering next week. There's also a link there for our Discord server where you can join and chit-chat with other listeners and other horror fans. We've got a great community there. Also at horrormovieclub.com, you're going to find a big orange button for patreon you can click that and subscribe for a dollar a month to get access to bonus episodes the last couple have been on twilight and uh anaconda Anaconda. yeah Mm -hmm. uh so go check those out and our logo is done by amy may pop art you can find her on etsy.com by searching amy may pop art all one word you can always email us podcast at horrormovieclub.com And until next time, if you're on a remote island and everybody's naked, maybe just give in and enjoy the oneness with nature. Right. It might be good to have some insurance against being sacrificed if you happen to uh, lose your virginity. Yeah, when in Rome.